Well, if you're visiting today, we didn't choose uh, this particular passage because we love these passages and we talk about them all the time, but because we're making our way through the book of Revelation, and this is where we are. We don't want to avoid any part of Scripture, uh, but we want to let it speak to us so we can understand more clearly who God is, who we are, and who we need to be. And to begin this morning, there's a passage in the book of Isaiah that I often think about. It's in chapter 55, and actually uh, are the pillars of our mission. Uh, one of them is invite everyone, and it comes, we, we cite Isaiah 55.1 here. Come, anyone, anyone who would like to, come to all of the food and to all of the wine. Come to all of the milk. Come, eat and drink. Buy without money and have everything that God has for you. But in this, a little bit later on, as you, as you keep going, it says this. It says, first, you're invited to God, but then seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, and let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And at first reading, this seems like a general call to repentance. Hey, just don't do the bad things and do the good things. But when I look carefully, I find something strange. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Well, wait a minute. While he may be found? Is he, is he going somewhere? I thought that God was present everywhere, all at once, accessible from every place on heaven and earth. Doesn't the psalmist say, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And I think the answer is present in this text. But it's even better explained by Jesus in the parable of the wedding banquet in Luke chapter 14. Jesus said that his kingdom was like a man who gave a wedding feast and sent invitations out to many people, but they wouldn't come. Those invited responded, oh, I already have plans of my own. You know, I'm throwing my own party tonight. Uh, or, you know what, I'm just too busy to be bothered with you right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What happens when, despite God's repeated invitations, people don't come? What happens when people are implacably hostile toward God and his people? That question is answered here in this passage about the first four bowls, really, of God's wrath. And we're going to get to the fifth if we can. Now, if you remember from where we've been in Revelation already, there are, there are three series of seven judgments in the book of Revelation. There's actually a fourth that we just passed over where God says, actually, seal that one up. We're not going to do that. So there are three, judgment, or three series of seven judgments that are actually carried out. And the bold judgments are the last of these three series. For the following summary I'm about to make, I'm indebted to Michael Wilcox's commentary on the book of Revelation. But the first series is the seals in Revelation chapter 6, which give expression and explanation to the existence of trouble in God's world. We look around and we say, this world it doesn't seem right. There is something wrong. And I think we're all pretty much in universal agreement with this. We all know that the world could be a better place. And we all have a feeling that the world should be a better place. And that's on purpose. God actually puts that, that thought and that feeling in our heart. He orchestrates the world as it is today. So we will realize this world, something is wrong. 
The second series of judgments is the trumpets, which clearly warn the world against cooperation with the forces of chaos and evil in the world. You see trouble, don't cooperate with it. And yet, human beings do. All of us do in one way or another, in ways that seem both spectacular and great, in ways that seem small and trivial. We, we participate with the trouble that's in the world. We cover up the truth. We seek our own good at the expense of the good of others. If I were to stop, you know, we do our prayer of confession every week, and it's not meant to make us feel bad. We always go back over this. It's not meant to make us feel bad. It's not meant to make sure that we feel as guilty as we should. It's meant instead to acknowledge the truth before God so we will find healing and wholeness in him. But we offer, I, I can think, uh, every week when it comes down and we say in that prayer of confession, hey, stop Take a moment to silently confess your personal sins. I can always come up with something. I've always got some way I've cooperated with the trouble in the world. And so God gives the trumpet judgments, the warning judgments that say, no matter how hard you try to fix this, it's not getting fixed on your own power. And then we have the third series, the last series. That's the bold judgments that we just read about. And now, the day in which God may be found, the day in which he may be sought, is gone. The bold judgments symbolize that to us first. And we find that by reading uh, the first half of chapter 15 here. Or, I'm sorry, the latter half of chapter 15. After this, I looked... We just heard this. We're going to say it again. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues. Uh, and one of the four living creatures gave them the bowls of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now let me explain what we're seeing here. First, we have the sanctuary of the tent of witness, which is the heavenly tabernacle that the earthly tabernacle imaged. Remember the tabernacle all the way back from the book of Exodus? God's people come out of Egypt, and uh, on their way out, they stop at Mount Sinai, and God you know, gives them the law, and then he says, you're going to build me the tabernacle, and that's where my glory will dwell among you. And the tabernacle is filled with the smoke of God's presence. And the, but the priests can still go in. The people can still worship at the tabernacle. But something different's happening now, because now the, temple, or the tabernacle is filled with smoke, and no one can go in. See, normally when we open the doors of the sanctuary, we think of coming into the sanctuary, right? But here, they open the doors of the sanctuary and God's judgment comes out in the form of the seven angels who have the seven plagues and are given the seven bowls of God's wrath. Now has come the time. I'm sorry, the time for responding to a warning is gone. Now has come the time for those concerned to make account for their deeds. And John's original audience, all the way back in the first century, needed to hear this. The churches who received this testimony in the first century were suffering all the hardships we've been talking about for months. And until the people oppressing them either repented or were judged, nothing would ever 
change. God's people would continue to suffer. Rome would continue to oppress the rest of the world. Because Rome liked to brag and say, Caesar liked to brag to all the people and say, I have brought you the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You can go and about your daily lives not in fear that an invading army will come in and will, will pillage your town and will kill you and will rape your women. None of these things will happen. I have done this for you. And how did Rome do this for its people? By going into the towns of the neighboring people and pillaging and killing and raping. They have cooperated with the ways of trouble in the world. They followed the way of the dragon and not the way of the lamb. And nothing would ever change until either they repented or they were brought to judgment. The people in the first century needed to know that God saw acts of injustice and he did something about them. God had explained his delay in acting is allowing evil, sometimes great evil, to be perpetrated just generally and especially against the Christians. God can't be just unless he will finally act to judge evil. Because evil is no trivial thing. Tom Wright tells a story to illustrate this, and I don't know that I can do better. He writes, imagine a village in the outlying countryside of Judea. It's a long way from the city, and even traders don't come there that often, far less government officials. A circuit judge comes to the neighboring small town once every few months if they're lucky. But that doesn't mean that nothing needs doing. A builder is cheated by a customer who refuses to admit his fault. A widow has her small purse stolen, and since she has nobody to plead for her, she can do nothing. A family is evicted from their home by a landlord who thinks he can get more rent from someone else. And a fraudster with his eye on the main chance has accused a work colleague of cheating him. And though nothing has been done about it, the other colleagues seem inclined to believe the charge against the innocent man. And so on. Nobody can do anything about any of these until the judge comes. And when he comes, expectations will be massive. Months of pent-up frustrations will boil over. The judge will have to keep order to calm down accusation and defense alike. He will have to hear each case properly and fairly, taking a special care for those with nobody to speak up for them. He will steadfastly refuse all bribes, and then he will decide. Judgment will be done. Chaos will be averted and order will be restored if he's a good judge. The cheats will be put in their place. The thief punished and made to restore the purse. <coughs> the grasping landlord will have to give way and the false accuser will suffer the punishment he hoped to inflict. And the village as a whole will heave a sigh of relief. Justice has been done. The world has returned into balance. A grateful community will thank the judge from the bottom of its collective heart. I think it's stories like this that, if we're able to receive them, remind us that if we get offended by the idea of God coming to judge, we're probably the people he's coming to judge. Not out of petty jealousy, that we don't tell him we like him enough. Isn't that the caricature? God gets angry when you don't worship him. He's just vain. 
No, that's not why. Not out of vindictive rage, because he's got anger problems and is always looking for someone to squish, which is another caricature of God, isn't it? Just angry all the time, looking to punish sin. But because there's real evil in the world. And if we can't see it, it may be because we are the ones perpetrating it. And God's judgment comes not a moment before hope is gone. He doesn't come when there's any chance of repentance. In Genesis, God promised Abraham a land of his own, but not until the wickedness of the Canaanites was complete. Not until the time for repentance was gone and over. When God sent the flood, again in the book of Genesis, it says that when God looked upon the earth, he saw that the hearts of men and their thoughts were only evil all the time. It wasn't when there was hope left. It was when hope was gone. This fact that God is coming to judge should cause us to carefully evaluate our own lives, of course, to see if we are participating in the broken ways of the world. When God comes to set things right, will he need to set me right, even though I was supposed to be one of his people? But it should equally cause us to look at the lives of our neighbors, not as if we were the judge ourselves. That's the mistake we make too quickly. I'm telling you, you are bad and you are, you know, I don't want anything to do with you. Right? That's my judgment. I'm telling you, you are doing this horrible, awful thing and you can't be redeemed. That's my judgment. I am telling you, and my only communication to you is how frustrated and angry I am with you. That's my judgment. And in every case, my judgment doesn't change the world for the better. But we should equally look at the lives of our neighbors as those who have realized that we stood condemned under God's judgment until we sought the Lord and found him. Or more correctly, until God found us when there was nothing we could do to change or transform our lives. And he forgave us. And he began to transform us to be like his son, Jesus. If we are in Jesus, we understand that we too were once under the threat of judgment. We were those experienced in sin. But we have conquered through Jesus Christ. We are the former addict who has come to terms with our own addiction. And now we are specially equipped to walk with people through recovery. Yes, as we consider that the time to repent is limited, we ought to evaluate our own lives again to be sure that we are in Jesus by faith, walking the way of the Lamb. But it's time to also double down on calling, God, on calling people to God's great feast of redemption before it will be too late. So the bold judgments assure the church that evil will not continue forever with endless warnings, but that God will act at just the right time and he will destroy sin in every way. And if we are unwilling to separate ourselves out from the sins that we love, we'll be caught in it as well. And now, let's enter into the judgments themselves. The four bowls, the first four bowls. The first four judgments, if you remember, are poured onto the earth, meaning the land, onto the sea and onto the rivers and onto the sun, perhaps meaning by this the sky. And if you're keeping track and if you think about that, 
God saying the whole created order itself will receive judgment. But in the middle of these judgments, we hear something strange. The angel representing the waters offers praise to God. And when you see this series of similar sorts of things, you usually want to look at the middle. This is a Bible reading tip here. If you see a bunch of parallelism, if there is a middle portion, and especially if that middle portion seems to really emphasize something, that's the big idea that the biblical author is trying to get across to you. This is loosely called chiasm in Hebrew thought. So here's, let me read this to you, uh, the angel's words. The angel in charge of the waters, the angel representing the waters. He says this, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. This angel is personifying the waters that have been turned to blood. And if you were water that had been turned to blood and could articulate a thought, you probably wouldn't expect that thought to be, oh, thank you, God. I'm so glad to be blood today. If you were the sun, you probably wouldn't think, oh, thank you, God. I'm so glad that my, I'm erupting uncontrollably and scorching the people of the earth. If you were the land, you probably wouldn't be thinking, oh, thank you, God, that now I cause boils and sores on all the people of the earth. We know a little something about this in the valley, right? Valley fever. The earth itself harbors things that, that can damage people at different times and places. What's happening? <laughs> What's this about? How can the creation itself, having absorbed God's judgment, give thanks? I want to take you to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, to pointlessness, to never being able to do what it was supposed to be able to do. Not by its own will, but because of the God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's like the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. Let me rephrase that. That was a lot to try and hold in your mind. Let me rephrase this. Sin came into the world. God said, this is a bad thing. And people may not understand that this is a bad thing, so I'm going to break the world itself. That's what... Paul means when he says the creation is subjected to futility. I'm going to break the world itself so that people, when they experience the brokenness in the world, would hopefully begin to look around and say, how do we fix this? Who can repair this? And they'd look to the creator himself. God subjected the creation to futility, not because it was fun, but in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. In the hope that people would seek a savior. And when that happens, the creation itself will obtain freedom. Uh, I'm a big picture sort of guy. I'm really good with big concepts. Not so good with the, the details. I'm really good at saying, here's the thing we should do. And I'm not as good at saying, here's how we're going to do it. This is one of the reasons I'm glad for a church. We need each other, don't we? We shore up each other's weaknesses. We help each other to see what we couldn't see on our own. Some of you are less grateful because you've experienced trying to figure out how to make that thing happen after I've 
callously handed it off to you. But in any case, let's just take the way we treat the environment in our world. I want to be clear, not adhering to any party platform. Not telling you, everyone go join the Sierra Club, because I'm pretty sure they don't have all the answers. I'm not telling you, everyone, you know, vote Republican, because I'm pretty sure they have all the answers. I just want to evaluate this theologically for a moment. God made the world. What did he say about it? It's good. Do we always treat it like it's good? No. No, we don't. What did God give us as a job to do? Adam and Eve in the garden. What was their job? Take care of the garden. By extension, what's our job? Take care of the earth. Are we doing a good job? No. No. You'll have to go to someone else for a solution. I just want to point out the problem to you. The whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And God comes and he judges the creation itself and it says, thank you. Thank you. Because finally you're removing the disease. What does it say? Let's, we're just going to look at this, turning the oceans and the rivers to blood because as Mary intimated, that's gory enough uh, for today. Turning the oceans and the rivers to blood. He did that because it was the fitting punishment. It was the fitting way for creation to respond. What did the angel say? You are just in these judgments because they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. God will cause the creation to reflect our sin back upon us. If we are unrepentant, he will cause the creation to reflect sin back upon us and give us poetic justice. And this is good news. Because the judge has to come and set things right. Because the creation itself is groaning and longing to be redeemed. Because the people who have turned to Jesus Christ already, who can identify the things that are good and beautiful and true, at least in part, recognize that if we are going to live the way Jesus calls us, we're going to hurt because not everyone wants to live that way. The way of the dragon and the way of the lamb are not compatible and someone needs to make a judgment. See, we accept the world as we see it because we haven't known it any other way. Sometimes we forget that it's broken because it's just always been this way. No big deal. Um, I have a, a, the upstairs bathroom in the manse in our house. Uh, the shower head up there was just trickling water out of it. Just trickling water. I mean, in order to, to like get wet and you know, actually wash the shampoo out of your hair or something, you had to stand directly underneath it like for a long time trying to scrub all that soap out of there. On and on and on and on. This, this went on and on and on. And, so, and part of me thought, oh, this is just how it is, right? You know, it's, it's up high. We don't have like amazing water pressure in Lemon Cove. Uh, so you know, this is just the way life is. It seems broken, but there's no better way. And then we went out and we bought a new shower head. And we put it on the shower. And what did I find? It's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, instead of taking a 20-minute shower, I'm like, please get me wet. It's like in five minutes I can be done. Now I understand. I understand that it was broken. 
That shower head was clogged up with all of the hardness of the water in Lemon Cove. But when we put the new shower head on, I finally said, ah, that's how it's supposed to be. And I think that when we look at God's judgment, we're afraid. We're afraid because at least if the water's trickling out of the shower head, it's not good, but at least there's water. What if we take it off and it gets worse? Do we live our lives that way? God calls me to this great thing, but what if I try it out and I don't like it? What, what if when God comes, I lose all the things that I think are really important in life? What if in, in choosing to follow Jesus Christ, it'll cost me something? You know, the, uh, I was reading this week in my own personal devotions in the book of Matthew. I wasn't planning on mentioning this, and don't worry, we're almost done. But uh, a rich man came up to Jesus, and he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus, you know, he says, obey the commandments. The guy says, oh, I do that. And then Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And what did the young man do? He heard this, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And the implication is he didn't do it. Because his wealth had captured his heart. And he couldn't see it because it's the way it had always been. And then Jesus, you know, says, oh, it's harder for a rich man to get in, harder for a rich man to enter uh, the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The disciples are like, well, but the rich people are like the best people out there. How can that possibly be true? And Jesus says, well, only with God's help can it be true. And then Peter connects some dots. And he says, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. So what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to all of his disciples, you can be confident of this at the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. You'll be the rich people. The last will be first and the first will be last. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Are you worried what you're going to lose if you follow Jesus? Jesus says, oh yeah, I know. I know. But what you gain in this life and in the life to come can't be compared. God is coming and his judgment has already entered into the world. The warnings are there, but also those times when God says there's nothing more that can be done. And I will turn your sin back on you. The earth itself will spit you out. That's already happening in the world we live in. We see empires rise and fall. We see politicians rise and fall. We experience in our own lives death and new life all the time. And it's because God is at work. And because he is the good judge. Because he doesn't judge just by what people tell him. But because he knows all. He can give us all exactly what we need.